Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on the channel. And today we're talking with Barry Eidlin about his book, Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada. Welcome to the show, Barry. Thanks for having me on, Sarah. So how did the book come about for you? Well, uh, the book is in many ways an intellectual autobiography. (laughs) At least that's how it ended up in that, you know, I grew up in Canada, but have lived in the States for a long time. I was a union organizer uh, prior to becoming a sociologist. Uh, and, you know, when I came to grad school, uh, I had this experience of working with unions on both sides of the border and realizing the, the big difference in the overall environment in which unions were operating and the way that, you know, Canadian unions, despite all their problems, uh, you know, just were in a much better situation. And then when I started digging into that, I saw this uh, very peculiar fact, which is that this this difference in climate didn't always exist. Um, And in fact, for much of the 20th century, um, unions were fairly similar in both countries. And then there was this divergence starting in the 1960s. And so it's very clear when you look at the at the data on on unionization rates, where the unionization rate from the early 20th century up until the mid 1960s uh, is almost identical in both countries. And then you get this sharp divergence to the point where today um, unionization rates or what we call union density is almost three times higher in Canada compared to the US. So I was hoping you could sort of set the stage for us here. You start the book um, by talking about VW in Tennessee and then a Tim Hortons, uh, beloved Tim Hortons in Winnipeg. And so I was hoping you could sort of set the stage of why you're comparing uh, the U.S. and Canada specifically. Yeah, well, the, the, the U.S.-Canada comparison is a, is a very useful and I would say underutilized comparison because there are. Uh, you know, the two countries, as much as Canadians hate to admit it, are quite similar along a lot of lines. Um, you know, both have this past as sort of British settler colonies. Both are, um, you know, fair, you know, ha- have similar um, legal systems. You know, they, they have uh, a lot of shared history. They're next door neighbors. They're each other's largest trading partner. Uh, well, I guess China recently outstripped Canada, but you know, they're, 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 they're major trading partners with each other. Um, so there's a lot of, and, and there's just a lot of similarities in terms of the, the, the cultures, um, you know, and, and except for when it comes to politics, um, you know, in the way that Canada in a lot of ways has, you know, a stronger welfare state, um, lower, uh, lower levels of inequality, um, lower poverty rates, all that kind of stuff. This difference, these small differences that matter, as, as some scholars have called it, are really important to study, be, both for their own sake, because we can sort of see, well, what is Canada doing that the US is not doing? But it also helps to shed light on how both countries came to be the way they are. And, you know, because what you, what you get from the comparison is this way of evaluating all these different explanations for why things are the way they are. And so, you know, because when we think about 
more broadly speaking, this, this book isn't just about unions. It's about this whole idea of American exceptionalism, right? And the way that the U.S. is somehow different than all these other countries. And there's a lot of scholarship about this and the explanations about, you know, the lack of a feudal past or the, um, the peculiar sort of focus on sort of liberal individualism, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of um, thing, the sort of cultural, these sort of cultural differences are sort of baked into the DNA of the country, if you will, uh, is this sort of fairly common understanding of what makes the U.S. different. And by comparing with Canada, we can see that a lot of these differences are actually fairly recent. And rather than being the result of these sort of deep, long-standing cultural differences and sort of the, the ideology or what have you, it's actually the result of political struggles and how those turned out differently in both countries. So that's really the, so there's these methodological benefits and also empirical in the sense of sort of being able to learn from the trajectory that both countries have followed. So I was hoping you could also kind of explain your sources. So you use a lot of archives um, in your work here. So I was hoping you could tell us more about your methods. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a comparative historical uh, research method. So the comparative part we just talked about, you know, that you can sort of, it's a good, uh, when you've got these sort of scenarios where you've got um, these long uh, time stretches, uh, you know, tracking change, large scale change over time. Um, and when there's a lot of moving parts, this isn't something that is necessarily, and, and, uh, and to, on top of that, you know, the, the, the time frame is such that, that the data aren't always as reliable as necessary to do something like statistical analysis, for example. Um, these are cases where uh, a comparative historical method is most useful, uh, where you can sort of reconstruct these historical trajectories. And by comparing these trajectories over time, sort of evaluate competing explanations and hopefully develop better explanations. So that's sort of the, the method behind it. And then in order to the, the data that I use, uh, I do use statistical data. Um, you know, I do have to go through some gymnastics to reconstruct sort of fairly harmonized time series for the time period in question. So for example, um, you know, to, to, to construct a, a time series on, that disaggregates public versus private sector unionization rates, um, the Canadian government only started disaggregating officially in 1997. So obviously, if I'm trying to track a change that started in the 1960s, you have to go further back than that. And so it requires some sort of making certain assumptions and sort of trying to piece different sources together to come up with a reliable time series that tracks over time. So there are some statistical data sets, but it's, it's at the level of descriptives. There's, there's no actual regressions or anything like that. And then I use, um, and then I use some secondary material because again, you know, I'm tracking a large, uh, large scale change over a large swath of time. Um, 
and I don't necessarily have, uh, I'm not trying to challenge every single part of the history at every single point. But then what happens is when you reconstruct these narratives, you come to these sort of key turning points in the narrative where there are these sort of different paths where these two countries could have gone. And that's where you dig into the archives and you, and so that's what I did. I, 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 I looked at sort of government archives where I'm looking at sort of correspondence within ministries, for example, in Canada or, or departments in, in the U S um, I'm looking at legislative uh, debates, um, looking at speeches by key, you know, government officials, um, also looking at labor archives, so similar internal memoranda, uh, speeches, communications, uh, organizing reports, that kind of thing. And then, and then also at the employer side. Um, so looking at how employers are reacting to um, union upsurge, how they're plotting against unions in some cases, or accepting them in other cases, uh, what makes the difference, you know? And so that allows you to sort of reconstruct these alternate historical narratives and make plausible cases for why they turned out the way they did. So you use all of this um, information and in chapter one, you start out by talking about structural and individual explanations. Um, and here you talk about the service yeah. sector versus like the public sector jobs, but you also mentioned like geographical shifts and preferences for unions. So I was hoping you could sort of talk more about these structural and individual explanations that you found. Yeah. So the, well, well, the first, part of the book is basically a systematic evaluation of existing explanations for this union density divergence. So basically trying to evaluate what the existing common sense is about why unions are weaker in the US than they are in Canada. And one of the first things that people think about when they think about union decline, both in the US but elsewhere, is this shift from manufacturing to service sector employment. So the idea being that, um, that there was this, uh, that unions were very strong in manufacturing and then as manufacturing declined and those manufacturing jobs were replaced by jobs in the service sector, which is less unionized, that that's sort of what drove the decline in the unionization rate. When you look at the two countries, um, what you see is that uh, Canada had a similar shift in employment towards the service sector, but did not experience nearly as much decline in unionization. So that suggests that on its own, the shift to service sector employment wouldn't explain the, the divergence between the two countries. A second uh, sort of common explanation goes back to what I was talking about earlier about this sort of this individualist ideology and that this basically makes unions sort of incompatible with American ideology and that, and that, uh, and that, that that's reflected in people's just people don't like unions as much, you know, that, that just because they're sort of ideologically incompatible with who Americans are. But when you look at the data on, you know, the polling data that sort of polls individuals, what you find is that for as long as these polls, as Gallup has been doing these polls, going back to the 1930s, uh, uh, an absolute majority of Americans approve of unions. Um, far more Americans approve of unions than are members of unions. 
uh, and save for one year, 2009, it's always been above 50%. So, and then in Canada, the uh, public approval of unions is similar, but actually slightly lower than in the US. So again, the difference in sort of um, individual opinions about unions or individual approval of unions is not a really good explanation for why you get this uh, divergence or why you get decline in the US for that matter. Um, and then you get into these more structural reasons. So the, so the, the, uh, another one is that, that there has been a shift in employment um, in the United States from the Northeast and Midwest towards what's called the Sun Belt, right? The Southwest um, and, and, and the South. Um, and, and these states in the Sun Belt tend to be lower union density than, um, than the states in the Northeast and Midwest. Um, but this simply begs the question is why you have these differences in you know, union density, why these states tend to be lower density than the others. Um, and so the, the, the structural shift in employment in itself just sort of calls for further explanation, basically. So that's sort of the, the, in the first chapter, the sort of the way I evaluate those, those competing explanations. Here you talk about some important cases that happened in the new labor trilogy. Um, and so I was hoping you could explain that more. Yeah, so that that sort of um, what the way I start out that chapter on policy differences is, I mean, because that's the other big one that people focus on is this idea that uh, you know Canada just has better labor law than the U.S. and this protects unions more, um, and it is true when you look at current day labor law that Canadian labor law is overall more protective of workers and workers rights and union rights than in the US and the stark counterposition i show is by contrasting um, the US um, supreme court's decision in Harris v Quinn and there's going to be a new decision uh, any day now um, in uh, Janice v Afsme that basically uses the individual's constitutional right to freedom of speech as a way of undermining unions' collective bargaining rights by basically saying that unions' collective bargaining rights are an infringement on individual workers' freedom of speech because they can compel uh, workers to support speech with which they may not uh, agree by paying dues to these um, to these organizations. So even if they may benefit these individual workers from the ben from what the union negotiates on their behalf, they shouldn't be forced to um, subsidize speech with which they disagree because they might engage in you know, in political activities that, that the workers uh, disagree with. Um, and so basically the, the, the key point there is that, is that the Supreme Court has come to see union rights as in conflict with individuals' constitutional right to freedom of speech. 
Whereas in Canada, you mentioned the New Labour Trilogy, a series of cases decided in 2015, where the Canadian Supreme Court essentially went in exactly the opposite direction um, the, the, and, and basically found that um, union rights are actually a fundamental constitutionally protection, protected part of workers' freedom of assembly. Um, and so the Canadian Supreme Court sort of read union rights, including the right to join a union, the right to, uh, and the right to engage in collective bargaining, and the right to strike as constitutionally protected instances of freedom of assembly. An earlier case, which I didn't mention in the, the, that part, is known as Levine versus Opsu, where they, the Supreme Court explicitly took on the issue of subsidizing speech the same way the Supreme Court did in the U.S. over the, uh, the, the, the Harris v. Quinn and Janice v. Asme cases and found the exact opposite, found that there was no uh, violation of individuals' freedom of speech by requiring workers to pay for the costs associated with negotiating and administering the contracts from which those workers benefit. So that's sort of a key distinction in the current day of, of, of how, how labor law differs. And so if you're just looking at the current day, then sure, um, the labor law is better. But again, th this is where the comparative historical method uh, comes in handy, because when you turn back the clock, you find that the labor law in Canada actually started off worse than the U.S. Uh, and the common sense uh, 50 years ago was that obviously the U.S. law is so much better than it is in Canada. And you have these Canadian industrial relations scholars sort of complain about why can't Canadian labor law be more pro-union like it is in the U.S. So this creates this problem that you have. So, so rather than, and then also the other part of it is that the, um, the, the timing of when Canadian labor law gets better is not in sync with the trajectory of union density divergence. So union density starts diverging in the two countries in the mid-1960s, but many of the labor laws that people point to in Canada as sort of creating a more pro-labor legal environment were only implemented in the 70s and some in, even in the 80s. Um, so, so the timing is off and there's also this change that has to be explained in order to understand. So it's not, a, so, so the labor law rather than explaining the union density is itself something, uh, density divergence is itself something that needs to be explained. So then you sort of tie this in uh, to the working class power uh, that you see in U.S. versus Canada. Um, and so you're sort of moving to exploring why we yeah. see the trends that we saw or that you pointed out before. Um, and so I was hoping you could sort of make that connection between these two ideas for us. Yeah. So then it, that, that's sort of this, uh, the, the, the last part of the first section of the book where I'm sort of evaluating these competing explanations is basically pointing to all these different factors that, um, you know, shift the balance of power in workers' favor in Canada more than in the U.S. Um, and so 
the the and this is the, there's a variety of these. So there's you know differences in the structure of political institutions. So the difference in the party structures, the difference in how the labor law regimes are administered. There's difference. There's sort of internal union differences, sort of in in how. Um, you know, how much more motivated Canadian unions are to organize compared to U.S. unions. There's these cultural differences I was talking about where there's sort of this more sort of collectivist idea uh, in Canada versus a more individualist idea in the U.S. There's obviously the structures and racial divisions, um, you know, the history of the past history of slavery uh, in, in the U.S. that doesn't exist in Canada. And basically, and from that sort of assessment of all those different explanations, you know, we, we arrive at a few key distinctions. So number one is these fundamental importance of the existence of a labor party in Canada compared to the U.S. So the idea being that so, so in Canada, as you know, the, the, there's the, the New Democratic Party, the NDP, and its precursor party, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the CCF which at key points in this trajectory sort of they, although they rarely were, they, they've never been in federal government and they, they've only, uh, they've only been in government in certain provinces. Um, so they've never had the sort of ma- achieved sort of major party status, but they've played this key role as a power broker in the legislature that sort of exerted power, um, exerted leverage to the left of the ruling parties um, and created this sort of leverage situation at key moments that um, you know created a more favorable environment for passing pro labor legislation. Um, so that's that's one key difference that exists between the two countries. But what what's left unexplained there is why Canada has a labor party, whereas the U.S. does not. Again, this is something that's sort of taken for granted as existing in the U S and taken for granted in the U S as, as something that's sort of almost impossible to, to achieve. Um, so that's the first key difference. The second key difference is um, that the, the, one of the reasons that the Canadian unions have this more um, a, a somewhat more, again, this is relative uh, more, um, you know, energy devoted to to organizing and, and a more sort of militant posture overall um, is these stronger links between the labor movement and the political left and left social movements. So not just the CCF, but the sort of broader social movement, you know, the feminist movement, um, anti-racist movements, um, that kind of thing. Um, and this basically had this sort of galvanizing effect on labor in Canada compared to the U.S., where um, left social movements, particularly after the 1960s, were often at loggerheads with labor. So you had basically a situation where they were sort of opposed to each other, whereas in Canada they sort of you know, it wasn't like they were in perfect harmony or anything like that, but they certainly tended to work together. Or they, they, it's not just that they worked together, they were part of the same movement. Like there was, there was, they were sort of organizationally integrated in a lot of ways that just did not exist in the US. 
But the question that's left unanswered there is why that closer linkage between labor and the left persisted in Canada, but not in the U.S. And then the third one goes back to, um, so the, the, there's all these differences in the, the structure of the labor regimes. It's not just the labor law, it's the labor regimes, like how, they, how the, the, the labor law is interpreted and applied um, over time. And there's these sort of structural differences I get into. But why do you get those structural differences? Why do you get this evolution in, in the labor regimes where it evolves in a more pro-labor direction in Canada, but not in the U.S.? Um, and basically, uh, and, and, and so that's the, the third key question. And those are the three key questions that basically form the, 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 core, the, the, the key questions that structure the second half of the book. Before we move on to the second half, though, I sort of want to focus in on something I think our listeners in the U.S. will be particularly interested in, and that is the right to work legislation that you focus on a little bit in the book. So I was hoping you could sort of explain what right to work actually means and sort of how that came about. Yes. So that's one of the sort of, I, I would say it's one of the bigger strokes of genius of the political right is coining this term right to work. Uh, which, which has such a uh, resonance and uh, is very hard to um, to counter while being incredibly devious and misinformative because it has nothing to do about having the right to a job. Um, rather, it basically is this type of law that was developed in the 1940s um, that basically... Uh, the, the provision basically stated in these laws that workers would not be required to contribute to the costs of negotiating or administering um, collective bargaining agreements from which they benefited. So if, I, if I'm in a workplace where there's a union that negotiates on my behalf and gets me you know, wage increases, benefits, pensions, that kind of stuff, um, that the, uh, the, the costs, so the union dues, the, the, the costs, which, are the, which is what funds the union's activities, that, that there was no obligation on workers' behalf to join or fund these unions. And so basically, but the, and, then, and, then what, and then on the flip side, unions... In, in labor law have what's called a duty of fair representation, which means that, that um, unions are obligated to negotiate for and represent all the workers in a workplace that they represent. So what right to work laws create is a situation where workers benefit from these contracts from, uh, from from these contracts that are negotiated on their behalf, but don't have to pay for them, uh, or or it's optional, and so this creates you know what economists would call a huge free rider problem, right? Because why would I pay for something that why why would I pay for this public good that I can get for free? So right wing anti union forces in the U.S. were very successful in the 1940s in getting these laws passed in certain states, particularly in the U.S. South. And this expanded somewhat 
uh, it was sort of dormant for, you know, after the 1950s, so from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, really. Um, and in the late 2000s, it started picking up again. So rather than just having these right-to-work laws in the U.S. South um, and Southwest uh, and sort of the, 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 the mountain states, um, it started expanding to states that were traditionally sort of union strongholds like Indiana, like Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, there was an attempt in Ohio, West Virginia, Missouri. And so, so, the, and so there's a lot of concern about these right to work laws and their role in, in weakening unions. The problem is that the measuring the independent effect of right to work laws on union strength is a very tricky proposition. Uh, it's very hard to measure. And that's precisely because there's so many moving parts that, and that, and that a lot of these states that enact right-to-work laws were already states where unions were much weaker than they are elsewhere in the United States. And so there's this problem of like, is a weak labor movement causing the passage of the right-to-work laws or are these right-to-work laws causing the passage of, are, are causing the weakness of unions? And so, and and actually, you know, and and so there's and so not only there's that, but there's also evidence showing that even in right to work states where there where where unions do exist, workers tend to join the union. So there tends to actually be sort of maybe not legal compulsion, but certainly social compulsion to join and contribute to the union. Um, you know, certainly maybe not as much as, as if it were compelled, but it's not like you enact these right to work laws and overnight everybody just quits the union, right? So the, the, all this to say that the sort of, again, measuring the independent effect of right to work laws is quite tricky. And so I spend some time sort of discussing all these, all these things. And basically where I come down on the question without getting in again, without getting into sort of any sort of independent statistical analysis of the data that's already been analyzed to death by a lot of people who are much more competent to that kind of thing than I am. I basically argue that it is much more a signal of a weaker labor movement that then sort of sends a signal to employers that they have the upper hand and that, 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 that the government in that state is on their side. That's certainly the case in the, in the more recent round of right-to-work laws, which were passed in these are previously previous union strongholds. But it's certainly even in the earlier phase, you know, where, where you have these very anti-union governments in these low union density states that are enacting these right to work laws as a way of signaling that, you know, we are on the side of management and that they certainly don't make it. It's not like these right to work laws make it easier <laughs> to join a union by any stretch, but their independent effect is I think fairly marginal and wrapped up with a lot of other things. A way of thinking about it is if you take a very, 
uh, if you take a strong right to work state like South Carolina, for example, which has the lowest union density in the country, it's around 2% or something like that. You know, if you were to enact the, the thought experiment I propose is, you know, if you were to, if you were to enact a right to, uh, if you were to repeal the right to work law overnight, what would happen to union density in South Carolina? And the answer I would propose is not much. And to the extent that precisely because there's all this other historical and political environment in which these laws are passed. And so to the extent that you would expect to see any increase in, in, in union strength in a state like South Carolina, it would be the result of the kind of social mobilization that would have created the conditions for the repeal of that right to work law rather than the right to work law itself. So that's sort of the 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 sort of parsing through this whole discussion of right to work clause, which has, as you said, become a bigger part of the political discussion these days. Especially when we're talking about unions, that comes up a lot. Absolutely, you know, and I think that you know the the that it is for the right for the political right, you know, the, these this right to work law strat is part of a very coherent political strategy on their part to essentially defund their political opponents. So what they're, what they view, what they're doing as is defunding the democratic party, because of course, as despite their weakened state, you know, labor unions are still, um, you know, they still represent, you know, 14 million Americans, right? I mean, they have, um, you know, still one of the largest sort of, organizations, uh, you know, political organizations that on the, on the left side of the political spectrum, uh, or is by far the largest. Um, and it has a presence in every community, um, you know, the, and so, and, and they tend to, and they're one of the largest sources of funds and, um, and voter mobilization for the Democratic Party. And so these anti-union Republicans view these right-to-work laws as a key part of their strategy to sort of cut the funding from their political opposition. Thank you for explaining that. You're welcome. Then in part two, you start, you sort of take us back in time a little bit to this period between 1932 and 1948. Yep. And you talk about party class alliances in the U.S. and Canada. And I thought something that was really interesting from this chapter is that you say that, you know, the political use of policy is really what cements the difference between the U.S. and Canada. So I was hoping you could talk more about that. Yeah. So again, this is the chapter where I focus on the question of why there's a labor party in the in Canada, but not in the U.S. And again, the conventional wisdom is sort of it's taken for granted on both sides, right? That there's that there's all these reasons about the political culture in the US that's more individualist, that's more collectivist in Canada, um, that there's this sort of institutional differences in how the parliament's structured in Canada versus the sort of more presidential voting system that basically biases the US towards a two-party system and, and biases the Canadian system towards a multi-party uh, system. And basically, it's this story that makes sense until you start looking at the data historically. And what, you, what happens then is that you see that prior to the 1930s, the U.S. and Canada looked, looked a lot more similar than they do today in the sense that you have these waves in both countries of 
sort of small but significant efforts to establish sort of these left, independent left third parties, ILTPs, what I refer to them as, independent left third parties that, that sort of rise and fall in these kind of wave patterns. And that happens in both countries up until the 1930s, at which point you get this divergence where you have the takeoff of ILTP voting support, particularly the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, which is the precursor to today's NDP in Canada, and the total collapse in the mid-1930s in the U.S. of of sort of this left third-party support. And so this sort of challenges this conventional wisdom that views the sort of hostility to third parties in the U.S., and the more hospitable political terrain in Canada as sort of baked into their country's respective political cultures. And rather than looking at these sort of longstanding differences in political cultures and the structure of the political institutions, what I argue is that you need to look at the way that these key political battles unfolded in the 1930s and 40s, and particularly focus on the role that ruling parties played in responding to worker and farmer upsurge in response to the Great Depression, particularly, and later in World War II. So in both countries, as a result of the Great Depression, you have these massive mobilizations of farmers and workers uh, that, that are, who, are, who are, are upset, you know, who are unemployed, who you know, can't feed their families, and they have protests, there's strikes, there's a lot of disruption. And you have these two very different responses. And in the U.S., we is well known that you have this uh, that you have Roosevelt and uh, who comes up with this New Deal, which initially has nothing to say about about labor rights, uh, but sort of uh, is included at the at, at labor rights are sort of included at the suggestion of his advisors. He's not really a huge fan, but he sort of includes these and. And he has this sort of rhetoric of appealing to the forgotten man at the bottom of the economic pyramid and that kind of thing, um, which has the effect of absorbing farmer labor protest into the New Deal coalition, at least portions of it. And, and so this is this more positive pro-labor response that essentially undermines the possibility for a labor party to take off in the U.S. In Canada... It's actually quite ironic, given how we think about Canada, the, the response to the farmer labor protests is actually much more hostile. The prime minister in the early 1930s responds to farmer labor protests by vowing to crush it under what he called the iron heel of ruthlessness. And under that program, that policy, he had organizers jailed, deported, shipped off to work camps in remote parts of the country. There was sort of this, uh, the, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, violently uh, disrupted cross-country caravan called the Onto Ottawa March by boarding the train in Regina and sort of beating the demonstrators and sort of scattering them. So there was this much more hostile response to farmer and labor protest in Canada. And what that did is that left space for this independent party, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, to take root in Canada and basically allow them to forge this alliance between workers and farmers that had eluded 
uh, previous efforts at these sort of independent left third parties in both countries. And so you get uh, actually the irony is that you get a farmer labor alliance in both countries in the 1930s and 40s, but it looks very different. In Canada, it's this independent farmer labor alliance that's within the context of this new left party, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. Whereas in the US, that alliance is basically fractions of the farmer and labor protests are absorbed into the Democratic Party New Deal coalition. Now, the, and the, you mentioned the political use of policy. This plays a key role in both absorbing labor into the New Deal coalition in the U.S. while undermining efforts to establish a third party. And this happens in two ways. So for agriculture, so for the farmer protests, there's the Agricultural Adjustment Act, along with a bunch of other New Deal legislation that basically uh, privileges large landholders as a way of sort of getting agricultural production back on track. Uh, so it, it basically subsidizes landholders so that the beneficiaries are basically these large landholders. Smaller family farmers get sort of these mortgage uh, uh, mortgage foreclosure holidays, which sort of placate a lot of them. And then the sort of lower layer of farmers, so farm workers and sharecroppers basically get virtually nothing out of the New Deal agricultural legislation uh, because they are, uh, you know, farm workers are often not citizens, uh, and but more importantly, they're not landholders. They are leasing the land. And so they don't benefit from any of these New Deal programs. And a lot of them are politically excluded by virtue of not being citizens, particularly in, in the case of farm workers. Um, and then obviously uh, with the sharecroppers, a lot of them are in the Jim Crow South, right? And so, and so the, the large landholders are sort of these wealthy white planters, essentially in the Jim Crow South, uh, who benefit from the New Deal and the... It's the, uh, it's the sharecroppers and farm workers who get excluded from the benefits. And then meanwhile, on the labor side, uh, you get the National Labor Relations Act or the Wagner Act passed in 1935. And what that does is that grants labor rights to workers for the first time in a sort of systematic way. Uh, it proclaims the right to join a union, uh, to collectively bargain, but it does so, but the, the, the way of sort of government certification of union representation, so the way that, uh, so it used to be that the way you would organize a union is that you would get workers organized, they would go on strike against their boss, and there would be a show of force. And if the workers were able to basically force the employer to recognize their union, they would then negotiate a contract and then you'd have a union. With the Wagner Act, it set up a sort of bureaucratized, government-supervised mechanism for organizing unions. And that was sort of this election procedure. Um, and what that did is that created a mechanism for unions to not have to go through the hard work of organizing workers to go on strike, but rather they could essentially poach off the work of other unions by basically getting a line on the ballot, right? So, so, so what you ended up having 
was the, the it sort of accentuated these intra-class within labor differences between these competing labor federations, the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which had these very different philosophies of organizing. And they the passage of the Wagner Act and its implementation essentially created a focal point for these competing federations to fight with each other over the implementation of this labor, this sort of union recognition mechanism. Whereas in Canada, the you have a similar split in the labor movement because the unions are on both sides of the border. It's the same unions on in, in most cases on both sides of the border. But because you don't have a similar labor law passed at that time period in the 1930s, the, the division between the federations is much less accentuated. It's much less prominent. And so the in the U.S., that sharp division over the sort of that basically have these civil wars within the unions going on, what that does is that undercuts efforts to organize these third-party efforts, which are happening at the local level, largely in the 1930s, through these, these, these local bodies called central labor councils, which are basically sort of jointly run by these competing labor federations, so there's AFL and CIO. But then when you have this civil war breakout, they basically say the AFL basically declares that they're not going to fund, uh, um, you know, central labor councils that support candidates that are endorsed by the CIO, and so it puts candidates in an impossible situation where they can't, you know, they're damned if they do, damned if they don't, and it basically defunds these central labor councils and leaves these independent third parties with nowhere to turn. And meanwhile, the, uh, you know, the labor leadership at the national level starts seeing the benefits of allying with the Roosevelt administration. And that sort of the com- combination of those two things sort of fundamentally undermines any subsequent efforts to establish a kind of party to the left of the Democrats. I actually really like sort of in this next section, um, this period of 1946 to 1972, uh, where you start by contrasting the two labor leaders in the in the U.S. and Canada. And so I was hoping you could sort of use them as examples yeah. for what you call repression, the period of repression and rebirth. Yeah, so that's the period where I answer the question of why you get the, why you have a stronger link between labor and the left in Canada than you do in the U.S. And that that starts off, that chapter starts off with this con- comparison of these two contemporaneous union leaders, the, uh, the, the famous um, U.S. business unionist par excellence, uh, George Meany, uh, known for his cigar chomping, uh, you know, hobnobbing with business leader ways, with Marcel Pépin, uh, the leader of the CSN, the uh, Confederation of National Trade Unions, which is one of the major Quebec labor federations. And basically, the, the, these two sort of grew up around the same time, um, you know, came up through the labor movement, but, but embodied fundamentally, you know, diametrically opposed visions of labor, where, you know, Meany was, like I said, a business unionist. He basically was in it viewed labor as a sort of special interest group that was negotiating on behalf of its members, didn't really care about organizing, was very reactionary politically. He was racist. He supported the Vietnam War, all those kind of things. So basically everything that was sort of politically problematic with labor, he sort of embodied that. Whereas Marcel Pépin 
for his part, you know, embodied this, you know, much broader vision for labor, this more social justice uh, vision, um, where and, and and the sort of militancy for labor, where labor wasn't just concerned about the negotiating the price for labor, but in building better communities for workers, uh, you know, had a broader mission for uh, people who weren't necessarily their dues-paying members, had alliances with broader social movements, that kind of thing. Uh, and they sort of embody, you know, at their zenith, so they, they, they're both sort of in charge of their unions, like in the 1960s and 70s, where this diver sharp divergence between the two labor movements really becomes apparent. Um, and that chapter really tracks why you get this labor movement that has tighter links between labor and the left in Canada than it does in the US. Like I was saying earlier, when you get to the 1960s, the new left in the US uh, often views labor as the enemy, um, you know, that they're part of the establishment against which they're rebelling. Um, and so the chapter focuses, so the obvious answer mm -hmm. that people point to is the legacy of McCarthyism and basically the role that Red Scares played in decimating the left in the U.S. Um, and that sort of paved the way for this more conservative type of unionism to emerge in the 1960s. And that, again, is plausible as far as it goes. It's, I'm not certainly not going to diminish the importance of McCarthyism as a political moment in weakening the U.S. left. It certainly was the case. But what we have to understand is why McCarthyism had the particularly devastating impact and long-lasting impact it did. Because what I point at in that chapter is that it's not like the U.S. left had not faced violent repression and red scares in the past. To the contrary, it had been a recurring phenomenon. And you'd had these waves of repression and rebirth of the left going back well into the 19th century. You have to ask the question of why did McCarthyism have the particularly devastating impact it did um, on the labor movement? And the key difference between the sort of post-McCarthy era and what went before is twofold. Number one is that the link between the labor movement and the left was decided, was, was severed. You know, prior to the uh, McCarthyite attacks, labor and the left sort of grew together. And the second part, uh, which is related, uh, but somewhat different, is that post-McCarthy, the left in the United States lost, lost its base in the working class. So prior to McCarthyism, the left was primarily based in the working class. Whereas after, um, you know, starting with the new left of the 1960s and continuing ever since then, that working class base for the left has what has disappeared. And while parts of the left certainly speak to the importance of the working class as an agent of social change and as a key constituency for the left, that they're often approaching the, the, 
the working class as outsiders, as opposed to prior to where even the committed, you know, members of the Communist Party and and Socialist Party and and, and other key uh, left organizations were themselves part of the working class. And so that's a really fundamental difference that we have to understand between what went what came before McCarthyism, what became what came after McCarthyism, is why it had that fundamental uh, effect in disrupting these pre- previous cycles of repression and rebirth. So severing the link between labor and the left and removing the sort of working class base of the left in in the US. Now it's not like the and what's interesting is that you know Canada had its own red scare. In fact, uh, you know, Canada in the, the the red scare started a bit earlier in Canada in 1946 and actually uncovered actual Soviet spy rings operating at the upper levels of the Canadian government. And yet that red scare, post-World War II red scare in Canada did not have the same type of devastating effect on labor or the left that it did in the US. It's not like it had no effect. In fact, there was quite a significant weakening of both labor and the left in Canada. The key difference is the link between labor and the left was, as I say, strained but not severed. So you certainly have the expulsion of communist-dominated unions from the Canadian labor federations after World War II, the way you do in the United States. You certainly have you know, a more student-oriented new left that emerges in the 1960s and this sort of separation of the left from the working its working-class base in Canada as well. It's not like that is completely absent, but it's much more mitigated. Um, and the reason for that goes back to Chapter 4, which is that you have this takeoff, this sort of establishment of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the CCF, as a sort of non-communist left alternative party. So in Canada, what happens is that when you get the Red Scare, it's actually the CCF that sort of positions itself, sort of presents itself to the government as the sort of loyal left and takes upon it as its duty to sort of police the Canadian left. And so it's the CCF that's actually going and implementing these left purges in the labor movement, um, in, in the political realm. And so, so which is, which is, you know, bad in its own way. You know, it's not like, it's not like this is a, it's, it's, it has a, is, it has a weakening effect on the Canadian left, but the, sort of ironic upside is that because the CCF realizes that, you know, if things go too far, they could be next, they make sure they sort of have this stabilizing influence on the left purges, which means that they don't get as much out of hand in Canada as they do in the US. And so when you get and then and then what they also do is that they still retain a sort of organizational link between labor and a political left. So while the Communist Party gets decimated in both countries in the post-war decades, uh, the CCF sort of emerges as a sort of fairly stable 
um, left third-party alternative that has these organizational links in the labor movement. And so what, what that means is that when you get to the new left emergence in the 1960s in both countries, as I said before, in the U.S., the new left emerges in some ways in opposition to the labor movement. So the labor movement is sort of viewed as sort of part of the establishment against which the new left is rebelling with good reason, because, you know, they are on the wrong side of a lot of the key battles. They're on the wrong side. Like the, 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 much of the labor leadership is on the wrong side of civil rights, on the wrong side of Vietnam. Uh, you know, they're, 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 there's rampant sexism, all this kind of stuff, right? So all the sort of key social movements of the 1960s, um, the, the, the labor movement that emerges out of the McCarthyite purges is this more conservative form of business unionism that is not very compatible with the ideology of the new left. Meanwhile, in Canada, again, you do have this somewhat more conservative um, labor movement, certainly after the left purges of the post-war, immediate post-war period. But it still has these organizational ties to the CCF. It plays a key role in sort of creating the NDP in 1961, the New Democratic Party. And a lot of the organizational base, a lot of the sort of emerging student new left actually emerges out of the youth wing of the NDP. And so even though they, uh, and, and again, you know, they view these, you know, labor leaders that they're in this sort of organization with as these sort of stodgy old people that they don't really want much to do with. And they're actually kind of envious of the more independent uh, students for democratic society south of the border who they view as sort of more sort of ideologically their, their peers and sort of, um, and that th- th- they like that they're not weighed down by these old associations. But the irony is that, is that that sort of has the saving grace and that the new left emerges in organizational dialogue with the labor movement. And so things like when you get things like the feminist movement emerging in the late 1960s, it happens inside the labor movement. It's not a fight where the feminists are sort of trying to get into the labor movement uh, or sort of organizing independently of the uh, of 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 the unions sort of forming their caucuses. You certainly get that in Canada, but a lot of it is actually happening within the labor movement itself, and and the the progressive unions in Canada, particularly the new public sector unions have a much more transformative effect because they're influenced by this, this infusion of political energy from the new left. And then particularly, in, and then that, that sort of, so you have the new left and the student new left, and then you have on top of that, the different uh, effects of nationalism in the two countries that has this much more transformative effect in a progressive direction in Canada versus a more conservative direction in the US. Because in Canada, you not only have the student new left, but you have in English Canada, this sort of Canadian nationalism that's based in a sort of uh, a, a version of a admittedly misguided version of kind of dependency theory that sort of viewed Canada as this sort of colony of the United States and moved to declare sort of political and economic independence from the United States. And whereas in French, in, 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 uh, in Quebec, 
uh, you obviously have the quiet revolution where you have the national upsurge that maps on to this sort of worker upsurge in the country. And those two nationalist upsurges have this galvanizing effect on labor combined with the sort of new left infusion that basically injects new energy into the labor movement right at the moment when employers are starting to go on the offensive. Whereas in the US, that again, you know, that separation between labor and the new left uh, means that the, the unions that do have some connection to the new left, particularly the public sector unions, are outgunned, outnumbered. And what's guiding the, the labor's ship in that time period is largely this conservative leadership left over from the McCarthy era that is opposed to the labor movement. And the nationalism that it espouses is this much more conservative, uh, pro-imperialist type, uh, you know, supporting the Vietnam War type of nationalism. And so labor and the left have these very divergent trajectories in the U.S., whereas in Canada, they are much more overlapped. And so at that moment in the 60s and 70s, when you get this pushback, you have a much more movement-oriented Canadian labor movement that is more capable of mobilizing, whereas the mobilization in the U.S., is sort of undermined and it's always sort of at cross purposes with the leadership. Sort of bring back these ideas in chapter six, where you look, take the long view from 1911 to 2016. And so I was hoping you could sort of talk about here what you call class versus special interest. Yeah. So that's the final part of the question. So after answering, so why there's no labor party in the U S but there's in Canada, why you have these stronger labor left connections in Canada than in the U.S., then you need to answer the final question, why, the, why did the labor laws change in, in Canada in this more pro-labor direction, whereas in the U.S. Uh, they, they eroded? So the, 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 uh, like I said earlier, the Wagner Act was passed in 1935, and that is uh, essentially the high watermark for protective labor legislation in the U.S., and everything that comes after that is essentially an effort to erode the U.S. labor law. Whereas in Canada, the sort of basic uh, labor law framework is established about a decade later in 1944 uh, with Order and Council PC 1003 is the technical name for the legislation. And ever since PC 1003, and it differs province by province because Canadian labor law is primarily a provincial concern, uh, but overall, the, that framework established by PC 1003 has been strengthened or has stayed the same. It has not eroded in the way that it has in the U.S. And so chapter six is about explaining why you get sort of stability or strengthening in Canada and erosion in the U.S. case. And so... The, and there, this, the story that I tell is, uh, is one about the way that labor law basically came to be perceived as the uh, perks granted to a narrow Democratic Party special interest, as opposed to a means of regulating class conflict with labor as a class representative. And the reason for this, I trace back to the formation of the labor law regimes in the two countries. So like I just said, 
the basis for the U.S. labor law regime is the Wagner Act established in 1935, so which is relatively early in the worker upsurge of the 1930s. So you really start, you get the sort of first uh, murmurings of the uprising in around 1933. You get a massive explosion in 1934, and the Wagner Act is passed in 1935. And it's not like that, and that, that does, and you have a continuation of the upsurge, but it's within that Wagner Act framework after that. In Canada, you get the initial stirrings of labor unrest uh, around the same time period, maybe a little later, but there's no formal legal framework for labor rights established until 1944, so nearly a decade later. So what that does is it, um, it creates in the U.S. this perception that, that or it's possible to create this perception that the government is sort of intervening on the side of unions. And because it's Roosevelt uh, and Roosevelt uses the Wagner Act to sort of cement this alliance with the labor leadership, it's, a, it's, it's easy to sort of view uh, labor law as this political instrument for favoring the Democratic Party's friends. In Canada, precisely because, you know, the government, it's, a, it's the Liberal Party, uh, and, you know, led by William Lyon Mackenzie King. Um, so they're not, they're not like the conservatives, which are crushing labor under the iron heel of ruthlessness anymore. But they are basically responding to labor unrest by trying to um, crack down on it and put a lid on it at all costs and basically restricting uh, workers' ability to protest to strike, um, and they and they just basically try tightening and tightening and tightening the restrictions on labor until it just doesn't work anymore. And they, and in, in the midst of a wartime strike wave in 1943 that coincides with a major electoral breakthrough in the province of Ontario by the CCF that threat sort of presents the CCF as this sort of really viable threat to the left of the liberals. It's the combination of those, of those two things that finally convinces the liberal government to accede to labor's demands and establish an initial framework. So whereas the U.S. framework um, can sort of potent, can plausibly be portrayed as the government sort of, uh, you know, providing benefits to this favored constituency of theirs, Nobody can plausibly make that case in the in in, in the Canadian uh, setting. Uh, it's clear to all involved that the government is conceding to labor's demands under tremendous political and economic pressure, and this fundamentally shapes the the development of the labor law regimes in the two countries. So the U.S. framework is fundamentally structured around articulating and defending labor rights, uh, sort of, and and this does, uh, and what this does, it, which sounds great, whereas in Canada, the focus, the overarching focus or logic of the labor law regime is containing industrial conflict, and so what happens with the rights framework is that it erodes over time. And why does it erode over time? Well, it erodes over time 
because over time, the well, the, the one of the key institutional mechanisms of the labor law regime is that the labor boards in the U.S. context are much more subject to what's called judicial review. So the ability of the regular courts to interpret and administer the, uh, or not to administer, but to interpret the labor law in particular ways. Uh, And so what they start doing is they start getting these labor cases with these sort of fairly novel collective rights established by the Wagner Act is they start balancing those collective novel collective bargaining rights against both individuals' free speech rights and employers' property rights. So this, there's this concern. So once you have a rights framework, well, you need to consider the rights of all the parties, right? So it's not just about considering um, about, about defending workers' rights. You also have to balance those rights against you know, employer property rights, individual free speech rights. And so this creates a mechanism for weakening and undermining workers' collective bargaining rights, concretely speaking, through things like what I was talking about earlier, right-to-work laws. The logic for that is, is that, is that uh, compelling workers to join unions is an infringement of their individual freedom of speech. And then for the employer side, you get um, things like the employer free speech doctrine, which basically says that employers have a right to make their views known about unionization to their workers in the context of a union election. And this, again, is sort of is in the context of it's the idea for it is modeled after the sort of equal time provisions that are sort of part of good governance in political elections, right, where each candidate is given equal time to make their views known. What that ignores, though, is the fundamental power imbalance between workers and employers. So that when employers are merely expressing their views, the fact that it's tied in with the fact that this is the boss speaking to the bosses, these workers whose livelihoods depend on that boss, the boss's words take on a much different meaning, can be much more easily construed as threats and intimidation. And what the employer free speech doctrine essentially allowed is for employers to legally engage in these campaigns of threats and intimidation that dissuaded workers from joining unions. And so basically in the US, what you had is sort of this this conflict over balancing these different sets of rights uh, and over time with this more expansive judicial review, the courts intervened to restrict uh, you know, imp- uh, workers' collective bargaining rights over time. So the right to strike, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, implementation of the ability of employers to sort of replace strikers with uh, scabs or replacement workers, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so it sort of reads these rights into the labor law over time that have the effect of undermining unions and weakening them. Whereas in Canada, the concern with imposing labor peace at whatever cost means that even people, even politicians and employers who have no love lost for unions are not fans, understand that this framework is beneficial for at least keeping some stability in place. And so what happens over time is that that the the uh, the labor law framework there 
is set up not like the um, the U.S. labor law framework where you have this expansive judicial review. Another part that I forgot to mention about the U.S. is that the labor boards are set up as these nonpartisan structures where the members of the board are supposed to represent the public interest, uh, but ultimately come to represent partisan interest because they come to be appointed. Uh, there comes to be sort of an allotment of seats by partisan affiliation, Democrat versus Republican. And so the members of the public of the board, the, the, the members of the board no longer represent the public, but rather the agenda of the president who, uh, who um, appointed them. And over time, even though this back and forth should sort of come out in the wash, you know, as, as more Democratic-leaning boards overrule the Republican boards and vice versa, it leans in a more anti-union direction precisely because of this judicial review part that I was talking about, where these cases find their way to the court system and the courts use these more narrowly defined vision versions of collect, workers' collective bargaining rights and more expansive versions of employer property rights together to basically undermine the labor law framework. In Canada, the uh, with that sort of containing industrial conflict framework in mind, one of the one of the frameworks that gets set up is that these labor boards are set up on a tripartite basis, meaning that there's representation for workers, for employers, mm-hmm. and the state as the mediator in, 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 in the conflict. So it sort of embodies the class conflict in the structure of the labor boards themselves. And so what that means, and there's a, a few other sort of institutional structures that are structured in a way that recognizes class conflict as a legitimate part of a functioning democratic society and seeks to contain it, but sort of just takes it for granted. This is something that's going to happen. And the government sort of steps in to sort of, you know, get the balance right, if you will. What that means is that whereas in the U.S. you have this progressive weakening of labor law over time in the name of protecting employer property rights and individual free speech rights, When you get to the 1960s and 70s with the employer sort of pushback uh, in response to declining profitability rates, that that sort of exposes the sort of hollowness of the U.S. labor relations framework at that point. And that sort sort of kicks off and accelerates the pattern of union decline. Whereas in Canada, when you get to that period of the 1960s and 70s, you have a similar crisis of profitability, but you have a labor law framework that recognizes the class conflict of the period because it triggers the, the, what, what happens in the 1960s with that slowdown of the post-war economic boom is that there's a massive wave of labor unrest that happens in both countries. And the government recognizes it as class conflict and seeks to address it through labor law reform, which is sort of how you think that, you know, labor law reform is supposed to, that legal reform is supposed to work, that the government is supposed to sort of find problems and address them through uh, policy remedies. And so that basically is the story of what happens in the, in the Canadian case, where the government recognizes class conflict as class conflict and seeks to address it. Whereas in the U.S., that same class conflict gets sort of misrecognized either as uh, efforts to pay off narrow Democratic Party special interests, uh, sort of efforts to sort of fix the problem are viewed as sort of payoffs to narrow Democratic Party special interests. And the problems are often just recognized 
not as sort of class conflict, but as rather this sort of individual worker alienation, something called the blue collar blues is sort of a common term at the time period. Right. So the, 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 so the same type of worker upsurge in the 1960s and 70s gets treated in these very different ways in both countries in a way that sort of accelerates the declining pattern of labor law weakness in the U.S. while setting a pattern of strengthening the labor law framework in Canada. Then in your conclusion chapter, something that I really liked here is that your focus on the road ahead. So I was hoping you could sort of give us the big takeaways and then see what you tell us what you see as the road ahead for us. So the big takeaways are there, there, there's several. I mean, number one is the idea that the U.S. was not born different, but became different, that we need to focus on the role of political struggles in setting these two countries on these alternative paths. And, you know, particularly that period in the 1930s and 40s, and then later in the 60s and 70s as these sort of key turning points. But the broader point being that, that these are historical processes that are the outcomes of specific historical struggles, the implication being that these are not sort of these immutable p- characteristics of the political cultures of these two countries that are forever uh, you know, ensconced and can never be dislodged, but rather change in response to social struggle. The implication being that the road ahead, that future waves of social struggle could lead to putting the countries on different paths. So that's sort of uh, the, one of the key points. So the, the, the point about American exceptionalism being that, you know, America was made different, not born different. Um, Number two is the central importance of class in sort of shaping people's lives and in shaping the politics of these two countries. So this idea, so the the book is called Labor and the Class Idea, right? And so basically, and the idea being that when you have the idea of class as a sort of legitimate political category, so a way that you can sort of organize politics around. You can organize politics around this idea of like, we are a working class fighting for these working class demands. Uh, And that is viewed as legitimate in the political sphere. It creates a political climate that is much more hospitable for a politically progressive and more pro-worker and more pro-humanity set of policies, essentially. Uh, whereas, you know, it's, it's well known in the U.S. that one key move that uh, politicians use to try and delegitimize a political opponent is to accuse them of engaging in class warfare, right? So when Obama tries to, imp- tried to implement sort of some quite modest tax reforms that would have sort of increased taxes on the wealthiest Americans somewhat, uh, this was denounced as class warfare. And that's clearly an effort to sort of delegitimize those types of political stances. Um, even if they're, you know, quite, in, as, as in Obama's case, you know, quite moderate, but it obviously anything, anything even more generally progressive than that is sort of considered beyond the pale in that kind of framework, right? So, but when you have um, politics organized around class lines, that creates the basis for a more uh, progressive political framework to take root that can benefit all 
parts of the working class. And I think that's the other part to understand here, which is that the class idea is a fundamentally expansive vision of class, not one that is essentially code for white male blue collar workers, the way it is often taken to mean in the US political context. Uh, this is a, uh, a working class idea that is based in a vision of the working class as multiracial, as multi-ethnic, as men and women and transgender and LGBTQ people um, from all nationalities, immigration statuses. You know, so the working class is this very expansive category, which is what makes it such a politically potent one. And and this gets to the road ahead, which is that you know we're we're in this sort of scary time where we have this uh, U.S. president that is sort of engaging in this sort of explicit uh, politics of of, of uh, racism, nationalism, imperialism, uh, you know, immigrant bashing and misogyny, and and we have you know a, a modern day Democratic Party that is sort of utterly incapable of responding to this to this challenge precisely because this class idea has been eroded in the US context. So to the so so the Democratic Party may well rely on labor for money and votes, but when it comes to actually speaking frankly about sort of the working class and sort of fighting for the working class, you know, it is, you know, utterly incapable. You know, there's the 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 the, the Clinton campaign was sort of this uh, you know, perfect embodiment of that sort of incapacity where they, you know, were, you know, refused to listen to the unions that were telling them that they were losing on the ground in Michigan and instead, you know, told them to turn the bus around and leave Michigan because their model said they were winning, uh, that they had nothing to say to, you know, the, the, not just the white workers that, you know, the white working class was what everyone was talking about, but they didn't have much to say to the black working class or the, female working class or the you know, immigrant working class either. You know, there was just not much of, 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 of a working class program. You did have, you know, Bernie Sanders, who for the first time in, in, in recent memory, you know, offered a full-throated sort of working class-based political vision that, you know, garnered, you know, tens of millions of votes, um, you know, but the Democratic Party essentially did everything in their power to undermine that. It's not, I'm not, not necessarily trying to say that, you know, Bernie would have won necessarily, but the, it, it is clear that the existing Democratic Party did not want that vision to become more prominent and put their thumbs on the scales to try to prevent that from happening. And what I would argue is that, you know, if we care about a future that is more just, that is more uh, in, you know, that is, more in favor of uh, workers, their families, uh, a more humane society that uh, you know has no room for uh, xenophobia, racism, uh, sexism, misogyny, uh, that that kind of thing. We need to take this sort of new class politics seriously as uh, as the sort of key to uh, a, a better road ahead. So, Barry, what are you working on now? Well, my next project sort of builds off of the uh, the, the previous book about, the, about that I was just talking about, and takes on this broader question of why there's no workplace democracy in particularly in the U.S. 
but you know, in Canada as well. And it starts from this paradox that uh, most workers sort of, most people sort of take for granted that we have certain, certain rights, certain political rights uh, to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom from unlawful search and seizure, um, all that kind of thing. And along with this idea that we live in a democracy, this idea, which, which, you know, as imperfect as it may be, has at its core this idea that the people should rule. And yet, when millions of Americans show up at work every day, they essentially check their rights at the door because those rights that we take for granted as citizens only apply to our relationship to our government. They do not apply to our relationship to our employers who in effect run these sort of mini dictatorships in, their, uh, in, in the workplace on a day-to-day basis. And whereas we take for granted the idea that we live in a democracy and that the people should rule in the political sphere, that idea that the, that, that the people should rule in the workplace is very contested, if not dismissed outright. While we, again, it's something that we seem to take for granted these days for the most part, even unions, to, to a large extent, sort of take a lot of that for granted. It's certainly the part about, about sovereignty in the workplace, the idea that, that, that the union should have some broader say in how the companies run is largely off limits today. But again, if you look at the history, what we see is that workers' movements prior to really World War II saw a much blurrier line between our political lives as citizens and our economic lives as workers. And so what my next book is trying to do is sort of trace that trajectory of how and why we came to see these, uh, to to essentially create this stark separation between our political lives as citizens and our economic lives as workers. And uh, and, and so trace, trace that out and obviously with the idea of like, you know, well, what would it look like to blur those distinctions once again? Sounds like a really interesting project. Well, I hope so. Yeah. yeah. So thank you again for being with us here today and talking about your new book. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Great. Thanks. Thanks.